This past Thursday on the liturgical church calendar, we remembered and reflected on the ascension of Jesus Christ. And this is the first Sunday after ascension. And so this morning, uh, we're going to explore its significance and its relevance. And the scripture comes to us from Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father, which is promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that my father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, as we consider this ascension, I want us to think about three things. Firstly, that Christ's ascension is plausible and historical. Secondly, that Christ's ascension has implications that are deeply personal and supremely global. And then lastly, that Christ's ascension re-envisions us to live in light of the eternal. So first, let's consider how it's plausible and historical, because this is a lot to take in. If you are here today exploring Christian faith, this is a lot to take in. A resurrected Jesus who ascends from this physical realm into the realm of God. Uh, Many assume that the Bible was written by superstitious sort of spiritual simpletons, and It was easily embraced because everybody was superstitious and it was a pre-scientific age and therefore we are academic and intelligent, modern, scientific people. And so they were just easily gullible and easily fooled and they were sort of primed in their worldviews to sort of just believe it. It was written sort of by them and for them. But when we explore the text, we realize that that's not the case at all. That the recipients of this message, they acted exactly like us. They were skeptical just like us. They doubted just like us. Luke, the author of this, was a Greek physician. So he was a man of science and an academic at the time. And he was also a Gentile. So he was a Greek. And when you consider that he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which is a volume one, volume two literary bifid, You've got a Greek convert who came to believe in the resurrected of Jesus Christ who actually wrote a tremendous portion of the content of the New Testament. And 
his way of writing, uh, Greek scholars would tell you, highly stylized, highly specific. He took great care, scrupulous with the details, consummate historian. Luke's writings ought to be ranked, when they are ranked, with uh, the great writers of the Greeks. And he was very sensitive to their need for proofs. Because he himself, being a man of science and of the Greco-Roman philosophies that were prevalent at the time, needed proofs. And so he's very sensitive to that in the way that he writes. You notice in the verse first he says, uh, it's written to Theophilus. Same thing with with, uh, Luke. And Theophilus, if you translate it, comes from two Greek words, theos, phileo. Theos, God, phileo, lover, the lover of God, the God lover. He's writing to the God lover who is a Greek and scholars aren't sure whether it was an individual who was leading leading a movement of people, whether the God lovers were a church. But the point being that like us, like this room full of skeptics and those that struggle to doubt, even those of us who are Christians and we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we come here every Sunday and we worship him and yet we struggle with doubts. Luke is conscious of that, so he's written in such a way as to invite and compel uh, the audience to believe these things. So what he does is he does what any good historian would do, and he collects all of the accounts. He wrote about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At this point, the gospel of the the eyewitnesses who had mainly uh, witnessed the resurrected Christ for a period of 40 days were all still in the realm of Jerusalem in the 25 short years after Christ's resurrection. So to go and find these eyewitnesses was not difficult to do. And so he does this painstaking fact-checking of all of these accounts and he puts them down orderly and he writes them all together. You know, to borrow from a pastor named John Lynn who pastored at New York, uh, in New York at uh, Redeemer down there, he said this way, back in 2003 there was a blackout that affected uh, uh, parts of Canada and the northern United States and it went on for a couple days. And there's a lot of you remember that because you were there. We could all tell and share stories of what it was like during the blackout. And it wouldn't be difficult to go and find people who would give their account of what life was like for them when all of, you know, southern Ontario, southern Canada, the northern states was blacked out for two days. You just go find the eyewitnesses and you line all the accounts up. Well, this is so soon after the resurrection of Christ and the eyewitnesses were all within Jerusalem that he goes and he does the work. This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is plausible and historical. They did not believe this um, because they were just superstitious, supernatural, you know, believing people. They did believe in the supernatural way more than we did, but they didn't believe in the resurrection more than we did. I'll very quickly mention the two prevailing worldviews at the time, the Jewish worldview and then the Greco-Roman worldview, neither of them would have believed in the resurrection. The Greco-Roman worldview, those who were spiritual people who believed in the gods and were people of worship, they believed that the the body was bad and the natural world was bad and the spiritual was good and the whole goal was to escape. So Plato and Plutarch, when those philosophers talked about, you know, uh, the afterlife, it was like the whole goal was to escape the material. So the Greco-Roman world was not ready to embrace a resurrected physical body. Uh, They would have just rejected it. They weren't primed to believe that at all. And then second, and, well, and on top of that, Plato, without getting into this, but I'm going to just drag him in for a second. In Plato's Republic, it's a ten-volume work dedicated to the fact that the gods were crazy and we need salvation via our politics. We're, we are intellectual, academic people. The gods are 
flying around in the heavens and they're shooting lightning bolts at each other and the poetry is ridiculous and you can't believe it. And if you read things like Hesiod's Theogony, the gods are falling into the ocean and their semen is frothing in the sea and that's how the world was created. And Plato just looks at this and he goes, this is absurd. We have to save ourselves through our civic duty. And so he writes his 10-volume work called The Republic. The first five books, you know, are here the forms of of governance and uh, a government that can save us. And then the last five books are, here's why they won't work. Sorry for that spoiler, but for those of you who were like, I was going to read that. It's been around since, you know, 380 BC. So you've had your time to read it. So sorry I just spoiled it for you. But but, But the point being that Luke, being a Greek, would have either been raised in this sort of platonic education or he would have at least been aware of it at a minimum. And so would the audience have been. So they're not going to believe in a resurrected body. Let's move on to the Jews, the other group. The Jews did believe in a resurrection, and you can read about it in Daniel chapter 12. But the resurrection that they believed happened at the end of time, when there's a resurrection, and that means that, in, in their mind, the overthrowing of the world powers. So they are absolutely not going to believe in a bodily resurrected Jesus while there's Rome is rolling on and doing their thing. That's why they wholesale rejected Jesus as the Messiah, because they're like, no, when the Messiah comes, that's the end of Rome. So what you need to understand is you don't have people who are just primed to believe this, who believed it. Christianity didn't explode after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And spoiler alert, next week's sermon is on Pentecost, how it goes global. But the point is that they needed to have their biases overcome in the same way that you and I need our biases overcome. And the reason why... They believed in the resurrection was not because they believed some inspiring story. Because a man being crucified on a Roman cross is mega embarrassing. It's not an inspiring story. No self-respecting Roman or Greek or Jew would ever believe that and ever follow that man and ever worship him. Not a thousand years later after the legend grows, overnight, which they did, overnight, worshiping Jesus as the Christ. For a period of 40 days, the text said, Jesus was appearing over and over and over to individuals, to groups. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people over the period of 40 days saw the resurrected bodily, uh, the bodily resurrected Jesus. So the reason why they believed was not because they were superstitious people crossing the fingers wanting to believe in a story. The resurrection of Jesus Christ in 33 A.D., after being crucified under Pontius Pilate is a historical fact. The empty tomb is a historical fact. And Luke went around to find hundreds of eyewitnesses to validate the historical fact, which is why himself, as a man of science and, intellect- and, and, and an academic, could believe in Jesus Christ, which is why you and I, today as moderns, can look back on history, that socioeconomical, uh, sorry, that sociological phenomenon of thousands upon thousands of people believing in Jesus Christ overnight. And we don't have to check our brains at the door to be worshipers of Jesus. Because we're not putting our faith in just some teachings of some religious person who said, hey, trust me. I'm, you know, I've, God spoke to me, trust me. We look back on human history and we say, God, the creator of the universe, has written himself irreversibly into our human history. And the love and the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ. And he had to give them many convincing proofs, verse 3 says, over 40 days because his disciples kept doubting. They're seeing the resurrected Jesus right in front of them and they doubt it. If you read Luke, it says Jesus was teaching them and some doubted. And so would you and I. See, just put yourself in there as a a skeptical, you know, person who's using your reason. And here he is in front of you and you saw him crucified. 
You don't, you don't even know what I'm experiencing right now. I don't even know what I'm believing right now. Jesus had to continually appeal to their doubts. You know, doubting is normal, and doubting does not intimidate God. Jesus welcomes the doubt. Jesus welcomes the skepticism. He welcomes the humble doubt. What God rejects is when the doubt becomes a sneer. When the pride rises up that we scoff in the face of God and we say, okay. And so doubting is good provided we doubt with a humility to say, who is this God of the universe and what has happened in human history and who is Jesus Christ and why was the tomb empty on the third day? That humble doubt is good. God invites that in and meets us there by his great grace. But may we not just sneer at God and scoff in his face and masquerade our sophistication as a sneer and say, okay, because we're made of dirt and one day we're all returning there. God welcomes the doubt and the skepticism. The ascension is plausible and historical. Let's move on. Christ's ascension has implications that are deeply personal, supremely global. In the resurrection and the ascension, we find intimacy and divine strategy and advocacy. We find that there's real personal implications of this. It creates hope, hope that's not fingers crossed hope. In the New Testament, when the word hope is written in the Greek, it means certainty. That's the way the apostles are using that. We can be certain of something. We're not wondering about it because we saw it, eyewitnesses saw it, history records it. Our faith is not just merely a theological claim, it's a historical reality. And the ascension has deeply profound personal things that are true about this. In verse 6, the disciples say to Jesus... When Jesus talks about his kingdom, which was his favorite topic. They say, is that when you're going to give the the kingdom? Is that when you're going to give things back to Israel? They're interpreting it as political. We've talked about this uh, many times. It's just the, the paradigm at the time is you're going to deliver us from Rome. But the kingdom of God means God's ruling power coming into the world to put things right. And when we look at Jesus bringing the power of God into the world to put things right... What is he doing? He's healing. He's caring. He's with the outcast. He's with the refugee. He's with the oppressed. He's with those with no voice. He is restoring the natural. He's doing miracles to... uh, These are teaser trailers as to this is what is coming. The renewal of all things. Not some ethereal spiritual reality that we can't get our heads around called heaven. The renewal of the world. The renewal of the material. Of God's loving creation. This is their first error. They think this is a political arrangement for one nation. Really, it's the liberation of humanity for all nations. It says Jesus was taken up before their very eyes. And while he ascended, in a way that we just have to sit in the mystery of that, what, the, what, what Luke wants us to get is that this is not just moving upwards in a directional sense. The word up in the Greek that he, that he chooses to use is empairo, which means to be exalted. So the original audience would have read, and Jesus was exalted before their very eyes. So what this is now is after the humiliation and after the crucifixion, there is now vindication. There is now exaltation. Christ the King. This is what he wants us to see, that this is authoritative, that Jesus Christ is ascending to power. I sit in the mystery of this. It's as wild to me as the preacher as it is to you that are listening to this. I sit in the mystery of that. How physical human could leave our time and space and enter into the realm of God. I don't understand that. I can't explain it to you. I'm not going to try and explain it to you. 
And if this didn't happen in human history, then I would just say, let's all just go home and save ourselves a couple hours every Sunday morning. But the fact of the matter is, the more deeply you dive into the historical accounts of the resurrected Christ, the more they point to the glorious truth that Christ has ascended. And so I believe it, and I compel you to believe it. This ascension was written in such a way to conjure this image of an ancient world royal ceremony, a new king that's entering the throne room with spectacular procession. I want to take a couple minutes to talk about the intimacy and the strategy and the advocacy of this and how it matters to us personally. And I took those terms from one of my mentors who I never met, the late Tim Keller, who went to be with Jesus and died this past week. Which, of course, is sad as the church mourns and his family mourns, but it's not without hope. Because Tim believed this with every fiber of his being. The, the, the ascension reveals intimacy because it means that God is always with us by his spirit. All of us. And our sorrows and our struggles and our doubts and our sadness. All of us at the same time by the power of his spirit. Do you remember in the resurrection when Mary Magdalene meets Jesus in the uh, garden? They go, the tomb is empty. Rome is running around saying the disciples stole the body. And Mary goes to the tomb and everybody's freaking out because where is Jesus and how did this massive stone get pulled out of the way? And why do these Roman guards fall asleep when that's at the cost of their lives? Why did all this happen? And Jesus appears to Mary in the garden and the text says that Mary, clung, uh, Jesus says to Mary, Mary, do not cling to me, I've not ascended. He doesn't mean, don't touch me, I'm so holy, you can't touch me, I need to ascend. It doesn't mean that because he spent 40 days touching lots of people. He says to Thomas, put your fingers right here. It doesn't mean that. In the Greek, this is what Keller says, in the Greek, if you were listening to an audio Bible, the way to correctly catch the intonations in the Greek of when Jesus says, don't cling to me, is Jesus' voice would have sounded like this. Mary, don't cling to me. Because she was clinging. She was already clinging. And Jesus says, Mary, don't cling to me. I I have not ascended. Which means there's more, Mary. If you cling to this, you will lose me at some point. I'll be in one place at one time and I will not be with you. But the ascension of Jesus is deeply intimate because now by the power of the Spirit, we never lose him. You and your sorrow and your tragedy and your doubts, he is close to you as your next breath. Each and every time as we turn to him. And some of you are here and you're like, Pastor, I've tried that. My friend, this is the water that God has given to rehydrate our souls. And maybe you came from a church context where prayer and meditation and scripture reading, all these things were ruined for you because they were somehow weirdly associated with earning things from God. Well, you can burn that nonsense to the ground, but do not disparage the water that God has given of turning to him in prayer and falling on your star fishing on your bed and turning to him because this is what God has given. It's deeply intimate to restore us in in our times of need and in our times of sorrow. The ascension is deeply intimate. There's intimacy there. Secondly, historical strategy. What I mean by historical strategy is Jesus Christ is king of the universe. He is raised and defeated death. What that means is, while the natural world of ours is rolling on, and your news feeds are full of violence and oppression and sorrows and tears, endlessly, cyclically, since the beginning of human history, and spoiler alert, will be like that if Jesus tarries for the next hundred years, what this means is, The ascended Christ takes all of the tragedy, he takes all of the sorrow, and he uses it against itself. So that through that tragedy, through that sorrow, through that pain, he continually draws by his saving grace those who would otherwise never turn to him. 
If you reject Jesus Christ, if you reject the ascension, if you say, no, he's not the son of God, if you reject God and you just say, I'm going to just roll along my life and just be a kind person and love my neighbor. Well, my friend, that is all well and good for the city, but you're still left with the sorrow, the senselessness. We're still left with the brokenness. We're still left with the pain, only we have nowhere to turn. And in a thousand years from now, which scientifically speaking is the blink of an eye, in a thousand years from now, none of the things that we wake up every day and say really matter do. They just don't. If you are the most influential person in the world and you are sitting here today, in a thousand years, if you're lucky, your name will be in a, in a footnote, in a textbook. Maybe. Most of us don't even know the names of our great, 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 great grandparents. You couldn't even name them. So let's not pontificate and super inflate their sense of own importance as moderns who would sneer and scoff in the face of God. What this means is it's historical strategy. God says, I will use every tear, every pain, every sorrow on itself. That in these things that are nothing like God, that he did not sovereignly, he did not, his sovereignty is not like some evil Geppetto, puppeteering humanity. That's not a picture of sovereignty. That's not God's sovereignty. When something burns and crashes to the ground and there's sorrow and tears, we don't sit back and say, oh, well, God's sovereign. That's all part of his plan. No, his plan is found in Genesis, societal flourishing. When we messed up that plan, everything since then has not been God's plan. It's been the result of our plan. And God has exercised his sovereignty by constantly moving towards his creation. God's sovereignty looks like in the midst of all of this muck and mire, I will move towards these people who keep rejecting me. This is what he has done. That's his plan. That's the glorious implications of the ascension. That when something explodes and catches on fire in the world, we don't sit back and say, oh, well, that's God's plan. We look at that and say, that's the opposite of God's plan. And through this, oh God, may you, the resurrected Christ, use that, those sorrows to turn people to your saving grace who otherwise would never turn to you. He uses evil on itself. He uses sorrow on itself. And lastly, advocacy. He is our advocate. There's no separation of powers. The throne room is the courtroom. Here, thankfully, there is a separation of powers. The prime minister is not the high court. That the, 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 the president is not the supreme court. Here, thankfully, there are a separation of powers. With the God of the universe, there's no separation of powers. The throne room is the courtroom. And that's what makes it so good. Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is the one who goes before God. He's our lawyer. And a good lawyer doesn't lean over the bar say... Permission to, permission to approach, Your Honor. And then the judge calls him forward. A good lawyer doesn't lean over and go, Come on. Come on. Just give us a break. A good lawyer makes a case. And Jesus Christ is our advocate. And when I sin, when you sin, our Jesus turns to the Father. And he says, They did it again. But I'm not appealing for mercy. I've already come in mercy. I've already gone to the cross in mercy. I've already absorbed their sin in mercy. I have paid the price and now I appeal for justice. You and I already have our verdict. And the verdict is not guilty. You and I are going to need to do confession again next Sunday. Because we're not going to make it that long. 
Some of you aren't even going to make it to the end of the day. And by you, I mean me. Because I'm worse than you. I'm not in your head, but I'm in my head. So the odds of me sinning before the end of the day are higher than I wish they were. And I'm embarrassed to say that there's things rolling around in my heart and my mind that I wish weren't rolling around, but they are. And I need the grace and the mercy of Jesus, and he's given it. But now I have an advocate who I can therefore stand before God and say, I'm justified. I'm justified on the basis, not of my progress, but Christ's perfection. Absolute perfection. The ascended Christ guarantees that we can know we are loved, forgiven, accepted, adopted. The ascended Christ is our advocate. We have the verdict. It is not guilty. Jesus descended into the clutches of death and hell, and he redeemed us and he removed the guilt of our sin, and he has ascended into the realm of heaven, and he has sent his spirit to unravel your heart, my heart, from our sin. So I'm not up here playing fast and loose with it, like, hey, I believe in grace and who cares about the way I live. No, I hate the fact that there's elements of my personality and my mind and my heart my actions that are unlike the ways of God that I desire to live into congruency with that. And by the power of the Spirit increasingly and slowly, I will, you will. It's deeply personal. But it's also supremely global. I'm talking about the personal implications for us as believers, but it is supremely global. If there's a king, there's a kingdom. If he's on a throne, that means rule. That means law. It means that you and I were saved from something for something. It's so we can go out into our city and reflect his wisdom and his love and his beauty in the earth. We put off our sin. We put on the nature of Jesus so that the way in which we relate to our neighbors, that we can bring a small piece of God's love and grace and of heaven into our neighborhoods as we live small, important, local lives under the wise rule of our King. Life of Christianity is not just following cold ethics. We're following a King who we love. Which leads to the last thing. Christ's ascension re-envisions us to live today in light of the eternal. Christ's followers, filled with the Spirit, declared and demonstrated the good news of the gospel. Their lives were marked by self-emptying care for others and purposeful vocation. We talk about this all the time at Redeemer. We find it in the text everywhere because it's all about coming into this congruence with what has begun. You know, at the beginning of this text that I wrote, that I read today... Luke says, in my former book, I began to speak of the works of Jesus. That's Luke and the Gospel of Luke. And now in the book of Acts, he's saying, my former book, I began to speak. Now he's continuing to speak. Jesus' ministry continues by the power of the Spirit. In a sense, there's a sense in which the book of Acts, the Acts of the Spirit through the church, are in a sense it's still being written through all of us as we just love our neighbor. And so you see... In verse 11, we get this, it's almost humorous that Jesus goes up. They're, they're, the apostles are doing what we would have done. They're just standing there like, what did I just see? I know I saw it with my natural physical eyes, but I don't, I'm struggling to believe this. And while this happens, these angelic beings show up and they say, why are you standing around? And it's a great, I mean, it's, it's, it's significant, but also funny. Hey, why are you guys standing around looking into the sky? Freeze frame. But I think we want to think about that question about standing around in a literal sense and in an emissional sense because the ascension ended up re-envisioning them to give their lives away. 
There was a self-emptying nature to that first church. May there be a self-emptying nature here in this church. And the reason you can self-empty yourself and give people your time and your care, or if they require it, your resources, the reason why we can live in this way is precisely because time, for you and I, is no longer the enemy that is taking away our health and our vitality and our strength and our bodies and our loved ones. And eventually, time... Without the ascension, time is the enemy that essentially strips us of everything we value, care about, and love. And I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm trying to be intellectually consistent here to say, you know, I praise God that all over the world, those who reject Jesus Christ still live, you know, many live to be kind and loving people to their neighbors. And I praise God for his grace that we're not just all living like we believe that after the, on the other side of the door of death is just a nothingness. Because if we all lived like nihilists, nihilists the world would be burning in anarchy. So I, I praise God that a myriad of worldviews, whether we're Christians or atheists or agnostics or Muslims or any other faith, that we can sort of desire the, the, to seek the good of the city in some measure. We have different ideas about that, but I'm thankful we're not living like it ends, in, it ends in nothing. But it's precisely because of the resurrection of Jesus that the apostles sort of lived their lives like we can give our lives away because this life quite simply isn't all that there is. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen and if the ascension didn't happen, then check your newsfeed, flip through that and enjoy your heaven because this life is all there is if there was no ascension. This world as we have it. This is as good as it gets. I know that there's bright spots and there's wonderful things, but I'm just being a realist. I'm saying that also, the only way to really have joy and not become depressed is to really not acknowledge the endless stream of sorrow and injustice that's in the world. So if, there, if Jesus Christ did not ascend, then that means there is no material renewal, which is precisely what is coming. This is precisely the implications of his bodily, his bodily resurrection. It's not a, in the end, it's not evacuation, it's restoration. And I know that there's a lot of people that if they sneer at God and they sneer at Jesus and we sneer at the resurrection and we sneer at the ascension, we look out at the world, we say, I don't know, it's not that bad. Life's pretty comfortable here in southern Ontario. I don't know that I need a savior. I Maybe I'll just take my vitamins and roll the dice and see how things go. But that's because we can't conceive of the goodness of the world that God intended to be and that he will restore. Years ago, Susan, well, she still runs a camp. We're running Camp Takaya for our kids. But before Camp Takaya, we ran a different camp. Susan ran it called Camp Dunamis years ago. We took 100 kids from Kitchener here on a bus to camp. Crazy, I know, but we were young, so we had more energy than we do now. And these 100 kids that we took to camp was about 90. They, they didn't come from Christian homes. They came from all over the city. We just, Susan got a, a, a gentleman in the city who was very affluent to write a check for $40,000 for about a decade every year. And we took 90 kids to camp. And he knew it was a faith-based camp, but he just thought, you know, it's a positive thing. Keep the kids off the street. Preach, love your neighbor, and I'm good with that. So he was happy to do it. So Susan ran this camp, and there was a lake, quote-unquote lake, called Lake D. Camp Dunamis, Lake D. And Lake D was actually just a pond. And it didn't have any flowing water, so it actually had a lot of algae in it. Not only that, but it was a little bit disgusting. One year, I did some baptisms in Lake D, and something bit my ankle in the middle of the baptism. And I just tried really hard not to react so that the person I was baptizing didn't change their mind and be like, we'll get baptized another day. Lake D was disgusting. But I'll tell you something. A lot of these kids had just sort of lived in the city, only ever been in the city. 
Many of the kids had never been to any beach. So for them, Lake D was amazing. Lake D, yeah, they talk about it all year. Next year at camp, we're going to go to Lake D. Lake D was disgusting. But it was pretty great if you'd never been to water. This world, with all of its bright spots and beauty, which I think is good for us to acknowledge. We should have a positive view of the city as Christians to love our neighbor. But in a sense, it's a bit Lake D. I mean, when you... When you've stood on the cliffs of Santorini and you've looked at the Aegean Sea, that's beauty. And this is what the ascension and the resurrection of Jesus Christ invited invited us into. All the bright spots in the world, these are a faint residue of what is to come. The sorrow in the world, the tears in the world, it will be eradicated with the return of Christ. He will make all things new. So church, may we be encouraged by this gospel May we live out the implications of this gospel. On Monday, may we go into our vocations, our families, our neighborhoods. May we just live our small, local lives, bringing the goodness of God through lives of genuine care and service. May we be bold to give a defense for the hope we have in Jesus. Share his name, proclaim his name. May we do this. May we not stand around looking into the sky because this same Jesus who was taken away into heaven, he will return and he will restore all things. He will restore this world. He will restore our bodies to enjoy it. May we live to the glory of the one who has saved us in grace. Amen. Let's pray.